Hi and welcome to the 1914 to 1918 war podcast. In this episode we'll continue our reading of Bruce Bairns' father's Bullets and Billets. We're up to chapter 8. So without further ado, let's crack on. Everything you hold very vile is at stake. Du hast uns starke Berührung mit der See, wenn wir dem für uns möglichen weltumfangenen Geistgenau von Gewinn. Chapter 8. Christmas Eve, a lull in hate, Britain come Bosch. Shortly after the doings set forth in the previous chapter, we left the trenches for our usual four days in the billets. It was now nearing Christmas Day, and we knew it would fall to our lot to be back in the trenches again on the 23rd of December, and that we would, in consequence, spend our Christmas there. I remember at the time being very down on my luck about this, as anything in the nature of Christmas Day festivities were obviously knocked on the head. Now, however, looking back on it all, I wouldn't have missed that unique and weird Christmas Day for anything. Well, as I said before, we went in again on the 23rd. The weather was now becoming very fine and cold. The dawn of the 24th brought a perfectly still, cold, frosty day. The spirit of Christmas began to permeate us all. We tried to plot ways and means of making the next day, Christmas, different in some way to the others. Invitations from one dugout to another for sundry meals were beginning to circulate. Christmas Eve was, in the way of the weather, everything that Christmas Eve should be. I was billed to appear at a dugout about a quarter of a mile to the left that evening to have a rather special thing in trench dinners. Not quite so much bully as Macanocci, about as usual. A bottle of red wine and a medley of tin things from home deputised in their absence. The day had been entirely free from shelling and somehow we all felt that the Bosch too wanted to be quiet. There was a kind of an invisible, intangible feeling extending across the frozen swamp between the two lines, which said, this is Christmas Eve for both of us, something in common. About 10pm, I made my exit from the convivial dugout on the left of our line and walked back to my own lair. On arriving at my own bit of trench, I found several of the men standing about and all very cheerful. There was a good bit of singing and talking going on, jokes and jibes on our curious Christmas Eve, as contrasted with any former one, were thick in the air. One of my men turned to me and said, You can hear them quite plain, sir. Hear what? I inquired. The Germans, over there, sir. Hear them singing and playing on a band or something. I listened. Away out across the field, amongst the dark shadows beyond, I could hear the murmur of voices, and an occasional burst of some unintelligible song would come floating out on the frosty air. The singing seemed to be the loudest and most distinct a bit to our right. I popped into my dugout and found the platoon commander. Do you hear the Bosch kicking up that racket over there, I said. Yes, he replied. They've been at it for some time. Come on, said I. Let's go along the trench to the hedge there on the right. That's the nearest point to them over there. So we stumbled along our now hard frosted ditch and scrambled up onto the bank above, strode across the field to our next bit of trench on the right. Everyone was listening. An improvised Bosch band was playing a precarious version of Deutschland, Deutschland über alles, at the conclusion of which some of our mouth organ experts retaliated with snatches of ragtime songs and imitations of the German tune. Suddenly we heard a confused shouting from the other side. 
we all stopped to listen. The shout came again. A voice in the darkness shouted in English with a strong German accent. Come over here. A ripple of mirth swept along our trench, followed by a rude outburst of mouth organs and laughter. Presently in a lull, one of our sergeants repeated the request. Come over here. You come halfway. I come halfway, floated out of the darkness. Come on then, shouted the sergeant. I'm coming along the hedge. Ah, but there are two of you, came back the voice from the other side. Well, anyway, after much suspicious shouting and jocular derision from both sides, our sergeant went along the hedge which ran at right angles to the two lines of trenches. He was quickly out of sight, but as we all listened in breathless silence, we soon heard a spasmodic conversation taking place out there in the darkness. Presently, the sergeant returned. He had with him a few German cigars and cigarettes, which he had exchanged for a couple of Mackinotches and a tin of capstan which he had taken with him. The seance was over, but it had given just the requisite touch to our Christmas Eve, something a little human and out of the ordinary routine. After months of vindictive sniping and shelling, this little episode came as an invigorating tonic and a welcome relief to the daily monotony of antagonism. It did not lessen our ardour or determination, but just put a little human punctuation mark in our lives of cold and humid hate. Just on the right day too, Christmas Eve. But as a curious episode, this was nothing in comparison to our experience on the following day. On Christmas morning I awoke very early and emerged from my dugout into the trench. It was a perfect day. A beautiful cloudless blue sky, the ground hard and white, fading off towards the wood in a thin low-lying mist. It was such a day as is invariably depicted by artists on Christmas cards, the ideal Christmas day of fiction. Fancy all this hate, war and discomfort on a day like this, I thought to myself. The whole spirit of Christmas seemed to be there, so much so I remember thinking, this indescribable something in the air, this peace and goodwill feeling, surely will have some effect on the situation here today. And I wasn't far wrong. It did around us anyway. And I have always been so glad to think of my luck in, firstly, being actually in the trenches on Christmas Day, and secondly, being on the spot where quite a unique little episode took place. Everything looked merry and bright that morning. The discomforts seemed to be less, somehow. They seemed to have epitomised themselves in intense frosty cold. It was just the sort of day for peace to be declared. It would have made such a good finale. I should like to have suddenly heard an immense siren blowing, everybody to stop and say, What was that? Siren blowing again, appearance of a small figure running across the frozen mud waving something. He gets closer, a telegraph boy with a wire. He hands it to me. With trembling fingers I open it. War off, return home. George, R.I. Cheers. But no, it was a nice fine day, that was all. Walking about the trench a little later, discussing the curious affair of the night before, we suddenly became aware that we were seeing a lot of evidences of Germans. Heads were bobbing about and showing over the parapet in a most reckless way, and as we looked, this phenomenon became more and more pronounced. A complete Bosch figure suddenly appeared on the parapet and looked about itself. This complaint became infectious. It didn't take our Bert long to be up on the skyline. It is one long grind to ever keep him off it. This was the signal for more Bosch anatomy to be disclosed and this was replied to by our Alfs and Bills, until, in less time than it takes to tell, half a dozen or so of each of the belligerents were outside their trenches and were advancing towards each other in no man's land. 
a strange sight, truly. I clambered up over our parapet and moved out across the field to look. Clad in a muddy suit of khaki and wearing a sheepskin coat and a balaclava helmet, I joined the throng about halfway to the German trenches. It all felt most curious. Here were these sausage-eating wretches who had elected to start this infernal European fracas, and in doing so had brought us all into the same muddy pickle as themselves. This was my first real sight of them at close quarters. Here they were, the actual practical soldiers of the German army. There was not an atom of hate on either side that day, and yet, on our side, not for a moment was the will to war and the will to beat them relaxed. It was just like the interval between the rounds in a friendly boxing match. The difference in type between our men and theirs was very marked. There was no contrasting the spirit of the two parties. Our men, in their scratch costumes of dirty muddy khaki, with their various assorted headdresses of woollen helmets, mufflers and battered hats, were a light-hearted, open, humorous collection as opposed to the sombre demeanour and stolid appearance of the Huttons in their grey-green faded uniforms, top boots and pork-pie hats. The shortest effect I can give of the impression I had was that our men, superior, broad-minded, more frank and lovable beings, were regarding these faded, unimaginative products of perverted culture as a set of objectionable but amusing lunatics whose heads had got to be eventually smacked. Look at that one over there, Bill, Albert would say, as he pointed out some particularly curious member of the party. I strolled about amongst them all and sucked in as many impressions as I could. Two or three of the Bosch seemed particularly interested in me, and after they had walked round me once or twice with a sullen curiosity stamped on their faces, one came up and said, Officier? I nodded my head, which means yes in most languages, and besides, I can't talk German. These devils, I could see, all wanted to be friendly, but none of them possessed the open, frank geniality of our men. However, everyone was talking and laughing and souvenir hunting. I spotted a German officer, some sort of lieutenant, I should think, and being a bit of a collector, I intimated him that I had taken a fancy to some of his buttons. We both then said things to each other which neither understood, and agreed to do a swap. I brought out my wire clippers, and with a few deft snips removed a couple of his buttons and put them in my pocket. I then gave him two of mine in exchange. Whilst this was going on, a babbling of guttural ejaculations emanating from one of the lager shifters told me that some idea had occurred to someone. Suddenly, one of the Boches ran back to his trench and presently reappeared with a large camera. I posed in a mixed group for several photographs and have ever since wished I had fixed up some arrangement for getting a copy. No doubt framed editions of this photograph are reposing on some Hun mantelpieces, showing clearly and unmistakably to admiring strafers how a group of perfidious English surrendered unconditionally on Christmas Day to the brave Deutschers. Slowly the meeting began to disperse, a sort of feeling that the authorities on both sides were not very enthusiastic about this fraternising seemed to creep across the gathering. We parted, but there was a distinct and friendly understanding that Christmas Day would be left to finish in tranquillity. The last I saw of this little affair was a vision of one of my machine gunners, who was a bit of an amateur hairdresser in civil life, cutting the unnaturally long hair of a docile Bosch, who was patiently kneeling on the ground whilst the automatic clippers crept up the back of his neck. And on that note, we've reached the end of chapter eight. I probably should have saved this particular episode until Christmas, but uh, that would have meant a very long wait. 
Thanks very much for listening. Make sure you subscribe and uh, I'll look forward to joining you on the next version of the podcast from 1914-1918war.com. Bye-bye.